kind of real atheology. I can't, I can't remember when you guys started, but it's been a couple of years now. So that's like one of yeah. those channels where I'm not, I'm not cringing, you know, every day. It's like, oh, wow, this is, this is some pretty good stuff here. I do appreciate it. Yeah, well, that's what we're trying to avoid is the cringe. So we, uh, Justin Schieber and I started the project years ago because we were really into the philosophy of religion. And we, we kept trying to dig around for little nuggets of philosophy of religion. And everything we were digging into was just cringe. Uh, we're, we're hoping to, to provide that um, alternative outlet, you know, something like the secular, secular outpost or, or what Joe Schmidt's now doing with the majesty of reason um, to just give a corner of the great debate um, some philosophical um, depth to it instead of just the new atheist rhetoric and you you know what I'm talking about, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I think you I think you guys have succeeded. I really appreciate your work. So I I, I speak as someone who disagrees with uh, with the worldviews presented, but I think you guys are extremely articulate, and uh, it's not just rhetorical strategies that are being flourished. So yeah, good stuff. Well, uh, so are we are we recording at this point, Chase? Uh, yep, recording. Cool. Okay. Um, I don't know how you want to get into this. I, I I sort of went back and listened to some of your stuff on morality. You had a a recent podcast, I think, on uh, irreducible normativity. Um, yes. Yeah, talking with a fellow atheist. He he was not, I think, very familiar with that view, and you were uh, getting it across. Markham, I think, if if memory serves me right, it was. That's Markham. correct. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, I could give a quick construction what I think your view is, or if you prefer, I would be happy to you know give you the reins and let you maybe present it, and then yeah, I'll uh, just go, yeah. Why don't I just go ahead and just lay it out real quick? Please do. Like you yeah. know, the minute or two minute spiel. Go for so it. Um, my view in the literature, you can you can Google it up, is what's called ethical non naturalism. And so this view maintains that some things matter in a moral sense because they're because cognitivism is true. There are moral sentences that can be true or false. Um, some form of realism, I believe, is true. Uh, so some moral sentences are true. They aren't all systematically false. And I believe that moral sentences are made true by properties other than the attitudes or responses of subjects. In other words, subjective characteristics. So I'm an objectivist when it comes to moral truths. And the claim that makes my view uniquely the ethical non-naturalist view is the claim that moral properties are not identical to any set of non-normative properties. So this is where Hegel would come in, where I would say, look, you, we can't do, uh, we can't use a reductionistic method to understand moral truths. We have to instead have a holistic approach to it. And so um, I think that what really matters is reasons. So I think that we all have normative reasons to avoid pain. I think we have obligations not to contradict ourselves. I think we have decisive reasons to accept the conclusions of sound arguments. And I think that someone's suffering counts in favor of us trying to do something about it. And so that's kind of the bare bones of the view. That's, that's the material that you would use to then construct a moral meta-ethic, you know, a view of what is uniquely moral. 
And so that's where we get the concept of a moral reason. And so I think some things matter in a moral sense because there are reasons for everyone to care about them. And some reasons are also moral reasons because they are stronger than any other competing reasons we may have. And so in apologetic circles, a distinction is often drawn between moral values and moral duties. So to try to help characterize my view within that language game, um, we could say that there are moral values like justice um, that require us to treat similar cases alike. Um, prudence would be another moral value, so we should have equal concern for all parts of our lives. And benevolence would be a moral value. It would require us to treat the good of any other as much as their own. And then to characterize something like a moral responsibility, um, we could say that an act is morally wrong or we are morally blameworthy um, if some act would be disallowed by a principle that would make things go impartially best or a principle that everyone could rationally will or a principle that no one could reasonably reject. And so those would just be the common principle, the, the, the familiar principles of common morality. So things like um, we all have reason not to steal, we all have reason to tell the truth, we all have reason to keep our promises, we all have pre reasons to minimize suffering so far as we can. Um, so these would be the kinds of principles that would um, ground, to use the apologetics language, that would ground the moral responsibilities or moral obligations. And so this view can often get confused. Let me say one more thing so it, to, to help head off any confusion potential confusion. Um, my view is called ethical non-naturalism. And so that's very unfortunate in the philosophy of religion when there's when the term naturalism has a completely different meaning than it does in ethics. And so when I say that I'm an ethical non-naturalist, I don't mean that I'm not a metaphysical naturalist. I mean that I avoid what's called the naturalistic fallacy. The naturalistic fallacy um, we get from G.E. Moore. And so when we characterize a moral truth, we're given neither a causal nor empirical description of it. Um, when we characterize justifications of how we think and how to act, um, we do it in the logical space of reasons. And the idea that morality is analyzable without remainder into non-normative facts is a radical mistake. It attempts to reduce the logical space of reasons to what I'll call the logical space of causes will commit the naturalistic fallacy. And so if we were to say, you know, and a good example of this is trying to derive a moral conclusion from purely non-moral premises. So if we were to say, you know, homosexuality occurs in nature, therefore homosexuality is good or moral per permissible, morally permissible, we've committed the naturalistic fallacy. Because the fact that homosexuality may, homosexuality may occur in nature is itself not a moral fact. A moral fact would be homosexuality has some property that is either good or bad. So you could say, you know, the moral claim would be homosexuality is morally permissible. And then you would have to do, you would have to use, you know, moral philosophy to argue that. Or you could argue the contrary and say that homosexuality is morally impermissible. And then you would have to argue for that. And you would appeal to more and more basic moral facts, not natural facts, moral facts. And so we cannot understand our actions in the world and their moral worth purely within what I've called the logical space of causes, the natural domain. 
we need these other kinds of facts that are not about the natural world. So these are normative facts, mathematical facts, modal facts, logical facts. These are all facts that we cannot use a reductive method to understand. So in that sense, I'm an ethical non-naturalist. I think that probably gives a good overview of the view of of my view. Great. Okay. So I have maybe five or so objections that I'd love to go over with you and maybe see how you interact with them. But I don't want to jump the gun in case you're interested in maybe exploring uh, some of my positions on these things. I, as a Christian, I obviously um, disagree with Moore's, what I take to be his, his uh, outlook on the guillotine mm. dilemma. So it seems to me that from, from my position that there really isn't any difficulty faced by a Christian in bridging the Izzat gap. There isn't any difficulty in deriving um, obligations from uh, special descriptions about certain affairs that God has set up. But so I just so I'm not cutting you off. If you want to investigate I well, that. I, th I think now would be a good I think now would be a good time for you to lay out some of your views then. Okay. That way we, we have them both on the table. Sure. Sure. Cool. Okay. So um I'm I'm not picking this up from reading any specific uh philosopher, but but my view maybe cuts somewhere in between a natural law theory and a divine command theory. And I'll explain what I mean by that towards the end of the summary. But what I would say is that I think um, to understand my view of morality, you first have to understand the difference between uh, God's good and uh, humanity's good. Uh, on a Christian scheme of meta-ethics, God possesses goodness in and of himself. And maybe one way we can explain this is by saying that God is Trinity, God is uh, three persons in one God, and so he eternally experiences communion in and of himself. He possesses love. Each member of the Trinity is uh, timelessly enjoying adoration of each other. They fulfill each other. Uh, they are, uh, as members of one God, in harmony. And so that beauty and glory is God's original goodness. And when God uh, creates the world. He seeks to uh, reflect his original beauty in various ways. One of those ways is to borrow some of Ben's language, perhaps in a moral domain. There's the, there's the realm of reasons and norms and values. And these are instruments by which agents that God has designed in his image can reflect his original beauty. So on a Christian scheme, there's two fundamental types of goods. They're related, but they're not metaphysically identical. There's God's original capital G good, and there's humanity's lowercase g good, which is a reflection of the original. And uh, what it means for a human to be good or bad is for them to interact with God in terms of the norms that he set up in certain ways. And so what I would say is that from my point of view, there's sort of a three-pronged or there's sort of three nodes um, that come together to make this moral system work. Um, there is the nature of God, there's the nature of man, and then there's the institution or law that God has set up that brings the two in communion, that makes it so that when human beings act in the world, there is always a domain of morality to that action. 
whatever man does is for or against God. Whatever man thinks is yes or no uh, to his creator. So uh, to me, in that system, it's really not difficult to say um, that uh, moral facts like you should not murder uh, can be cashed out in more fundamental descriptive terms because it is exactly this description I've given, wherein God legislates moral facts in the universe and moral agents capable of being the audience of those facts uh, that uh, entail obligations for those agents. In, in, in a very simplistic way, God has said, thou shalt not murder. And that, unlike divine command theory, that's not to say you can reduce these moral facts to commands, but it is to say that God, God's commands always convey moral facts that he himself has legislated. So like divine command theory, even though his commands aren't identical to or aren't the thing to which moral facts reduce, uh, nevertheless, God and his uh, creatorhood, the way he um, formats or designs the whole uh, setting in which we participate is a sufficient condition for moral facts. He is a sufficient ground. And uh, like NLT, like natural law theory, um, the nature of man is essential to this moral system. It, it simply there there is nothing to which these moral facts pertain if there are no human agents made in God's image to reflect His original beauty and their beauteous and, and glorious actions. So, um, just for clarity, would it would it be fair to say that even on your view, even though we cannot reduce something like moral obligations to God's commands, morality would still consist in some necessary fashion of divine commands. Divine commands would still be a necessary part of morality, even if we couldn't reduce certain you know, basic moral facts to his commands. Speaking oh, that's how very... I'm trying to understand it. <laughs> no problem. Yeah, no, no problem. Uh, so speaking very strictly, I don't think they are metaphysically necessary. In other words, I don't think that, or I should say, I don't think they are necessary to meta-ethics. God does not need to verbally command something in order for that something to be obligatory. Rather, I think they are epistemologically necessary. So I think what God's commands do is tell us uh, imperatively what things he's legislated, but they aren't themselves the legislation. So I think the, the uh, connection is that like when you read Exodus, um, the law there is doing two things. Um, it, is, uh, it is setting up a, a covenant. So it's setting up a contract with the people of Israel, uh, to use modern terminology. And in terms of that contract, uh, these people of Israel are, are um, obliged to certain uh, terms and services that God has set up. And those terms and services are communicated in terms of, of the commands that you see, you know, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal. And uh, that sort of reasoning that I'm doing about Exodus is the same reasoning that I'm doing about man on a cosmic scale. I'm saying, look, man is born into a covenant with God. Man is, is always a contracted creature from day one, you know, from, from life's first breath till, uh, till final death. Man is, is in covenant with God and therefore has these terms and services 
that just constitute part of what it means to be a human being. Okay. Um, so, would it also be fair, just one more, um, so God's commands here are doing um, more epistemological work than they generally would from the ontological formulations of, say, divine command theory, where certain, you know, certain people would say, look, God's commands provide the ontological foundation. And, um, so you would be less towards that move and more towards what, like, God's commands also constitute an epistemological um, understanding of how we come to moral, the two, our, how we come to know moral truths. Is that fair? That's, I think that's accurate. Yeah, I think I might even put it a little more strongly that um, the primary function of the commands is epistemological. That's, that's, gotcha. that's almost uh, entirely what they're doing. Gotcha. Oh, all right. So from here, um, let me go ahead and the, so there was uh, in laying it out, the, the two worries that I have right off the bat um, is the first is this. Um, I laid out my view. I built it all on the concept of a moral reason. And so you have built it on the concept of nature of God, the nature of man, and the legislation that God has, the divine legislation that exists between God and man. You see this simplicity as a worry for your view, where, you know, my view only has to appeal to one essential normative concept. It sounds like you need at least three concepts to start building an ethical theory. Is that something that Worry. It would worry me. I mean, that's why I'm putting it towards you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess. I guess I don't think so. Um, uh, I don't want to jump the gun, but w one of my one of my counter concerns is exactly that. I think when we take away um, one of these three pieces, we're going to see immediately some problems uh, strike up. So I think. I think um, uh, just just to sort of preview things, like I think you're going to have a problem with some kind of fatalism. On the one hand, if you take away the human nature part of the equation that I set up, and I think mm -hmm. uh, if you take the God part out of the picture, then you're going to have a really hard problem um, identifying exactly what goodness is. I, I think uh, I think that's a, a I think that's the same kind of emptiness objection that you might give to um, a moral Platonist. Okay. Um, and then the second um, worry was this um, idea of God is the primary good, and all other goods reflect his goodness. So there's this reflecting relation that's somewhat a little uh, unclear to me, um, because it seems to imply that God is the only thing of intrinsic value that everything else is only extrinsically value, valuable. It is only valuable in relation to God, which to me seems implausible because I think things like truth, love are intrinsically valuable. They're things that um, are valuable in and of themselves. And so we don't need to make reference to anything else 
to under you know for them to be valuable so does your view imply that there just are no intrinsic goods other than god um so if we're defining intrinsic excuse me if we're defining intrinsic and extrinsic uh in, in a way such that excuse me oof, uh, something is extrinsically valuable just in case it derives its value from something else, then I would concede that, yeah, I think that God is the only uh, intrinsic value. It seems to me that um, I don't, I, I guess I, I would have a differing view about truth as well. My, my uh, the creature creator distinction that I made with respect to metaethics is one that I would make even with respect to, say, metaphysics of logic or, um, or a theory of truth or something like that. I don't think that God's truth is metaphysically identical to um, you know, the, the property truth that we talk about when we're talking about propositions or something like that. So um, my approach is maybe more radical than uh, most. Uh, I think you're going to run into more divine conceptualists and DCT proponents uh in these apologetic conversations but but maybe in defense of those christians i would say it seems to me that one strategy one i wouldn't personally take is that you can uh deposit truth in god and so you can say you know well the metaphysics of truth is that originally it belongs to god and it has something to do with god so that the intrinsic value of truth is exactly consistent with this view because uh you know, truth is exemplified in God first, and then every other truth is a reflection of that original. Gotcha. Um, I said all these this this these questions because um, again to clarify for the for anyone listening, my view doesn't rule out God. There is nothing about my view that says God does not exist. Um, in fact, I would say that my that the concept of God presupposes my view because of the theologically important claim God is morally perfect or morally good or perfectly good or however we want to cash it out. And so on my view, there is no distinction between God's truth and man's truth. There's no distinction between man's goodness and God's goodness. Now, they might be exemplified in different ways, but there's still just one truth and there's still just one goodness. That makes sense. So that when I started this off, I was like, you know, does this simplicity worry you? Because I, um, the advantage that I think my view has a priori here is its simplicity. It's just the bare, you know, I I don't have to make the concession that there's only one thing of intrinsic value. You say that there's a plurality of things that are of intrinsic value, and I don't have to make these distinctions. I don't have to introduce these three parts that you did, uh, that you, you know, God's nature, God, man's nature, and then the divine legislation that exists between them. Now that we have more uh, of a more full picture, I'd like to give you the opportunity to come back to that original object of simplicity. Because I know that you said that if we deviate from your view, we'll run into things like fatalism. Um, would you still go that route? Would you say, look, like, look, these are just the necessary pieces, and anytime we try to deviate from them, we're just going to run into insolvable problems? Yeah, I think towards the simplicity concern, I would say uh, two things. 
I, I would I would concede what you the way you just put. It. I think that's exactly right. That um, we're really going to end up in something of a um, transcendental criticism of each other's views. That look, I, I treat this as um, just the kind of conceptual framework that you have to work in to intelligibly talk about morality. And and as soon as you step outside of that. You know, are the very things that we're trying to refer to uh, with moral sentences just don't find any purchase. The stuff starts to fall apart. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. So, but I would also say that I think um, a, there's a, a a correlated problem with something like parsimony that the way you determine parsimony is somewhat subject to your own worldview. It's somewhat subject to your own. Uh, uh, epistemological pre-commitments. And so we might not share the same pre-commitments about, you know, what makes something uh, truly simple. So I, I won't press that concern. If, if you disagree, that's fine. But I'll just say that, you know, maybe maybe another time we might want to, we might want to talk about epistemology or something if you're interested. And I For think, sure. yeah, so I think, I think the issue there is like, well, hmm, is it really less simple or not? But it seems like that might be able to, that might be open to a challenge. Sorry about that. Oh, no. <laughs> for, for whatever reason, they love to just try to sit on the keyboard of the laptop. Oh, yeah. I, there's, uh, there's one that's always trying to get in my room. I feel bad whenever I have to make her get out. Uh, okay, so... Um, do we, uh, from here, do we would just want to then, I think now's a good place to the back and forth of, of what we think are the advantages of our view. So now we've set up that it's obviously going to be a, a, uh, as you said, a, a transcendental sort of disagreement where we say, okay, look, these are the problems that your view is going to run into. And these are the problems that I, my view is going to run into and then try to parse them out. Is that. Yeah, I think that's that sweet. Yeah. Um, so the first thing that comes to my mind is the theologically important claim that I mentioned earlier that God is perfectly good. And so um, I take that as a theologically important claim, that we, we, we can't sacrifice that claim if we're going to be perfect being theists. And I also take that claim to be stating a substantive moral fact. It's not something trivial. It's something... Substantive. We are saying something about God's um, actions, his character, his moral value. Um, we are saying something about our uh, potentially our obligations of worship to him. But if we're going to reduce in one way God's uh, uh, goodness to God's nature, if God's nature is the uh, paradigm of goodness, we aren't actually stating a moral fact now about God when we say God is good. We're just saying God is identical to his nature, which is just a trivial claim. And then we, it also raises the further issue of, you know, well, then what grounds, uh, what, what constrains God's nature? What are the moral obligations constrain God's nature such that he couldn't be hateful? You know, why is God loving rather than hateful? Is there something that constrains, morally constrains that nature? So I don't think that, this, I think this view is going to run into problems of, one, making the theologically essential 
claim, not as good, substantive. And then it's going to have an additional problem of grounding what constrains God's nature. What is it that makes God's nature morally relevant, such that his nature is loving rather than hateful? Why is, you know, um, right now on the view, it seems that, you know, a love, there would be no, more, no moral difference between a loving God and a hateful God. Because on your view, it's just whatever God's nature is becomes the paradigm of moral goodness. Does that help uh, characterize the worry? I think so. Uh, so, I mean, just to interrupt me and tell me that I've completely misunderstood you, but it sounds, this sounds very similar to something like a Euthyphro dilemma that, you know, on, on the one hand, you can ask the question, you know, are, are moral facts, and, and in this case, we're using the example of moral ascriptions about God. You know, when we say that God is good, for example, are those moral facts, uh, moral facts because God says so? Uh, in which case, there seems to be some kind of uh, arbitrariness there. Uh, or uh, is God saying there are moral facts because he sees that they're already there? You know, there are these moral facts that inform uh, his beliefs about them and, and count as reasons, I think you would say, to make those judgments. Is that like a fair... So I would say it is certainly related to the Euthyphro dilemma. We could use Euthyphro dilemma as a tool to help us understand this worry. Um, but the worry can be articulated without using the Euthyphro dilemma. For example, my the idea that we're worried about God, God is good being a substantive claim. This is more. Pro this is also related to Hume's is ought distinction and G. E. Moore's open question argument. Say, you know, um, how do these things state substantive facts? Um, and then there's the standing objection to divine command theory of what grounds God's moral obligations? Is it another command? Because if it's another, you know, what grounds that that command? Is it another command again? And then you have an infinite regress of grounding commands. So certainly the Euthyphro dilemma is related because we can we can ask, you know, uh, just like you said, what is the moral difference between a loving God and a hateful God? Is it because God says so, or is it just there's some reason independent of God that makes it the case that there's a moral difference there? Certainly yeah. we can use the Euthyphro dilemma um, to, to help us drive issue here, but I think the issue goes beyond the Euthyphro dilemma. We don't necessarily need to invoke the Euthyphro dilemma in order to raise this worry. Okay, yeah, well, so it seems to me, uh, let me set up how I think these questions could be answered, and then I'll give my answer. So toward the emptiness or vacuity question, you know, what, what does it mean, really? How does it cash out when we say God is good. It uh, seems to me that all I need to do to answer that sort of question is just to uh, give uh, you know, some straightforward answer about uh, what I'm referring to or what I'm talking about uh, when I talk about God's goodness, to give some kind of um, answer that doesn't just count as a synonym or something of you know, God is good. And it seems that I've already done that. My answer is that God is a Trinity. And so in and of himself, God experiences love. He experiences communion. He possesses in himself uh, a life 
that is not subject to time or change. And it seems to me that from that, there is an expectation that when God wishes to share that goodness uh, to creatures that can witness reflections of it, or that can experience uh, things that resemble that original communion, uh, his way of doing so would involve the things we call love and uh, interaction, relationships, uh, these sort of social realities uh, that we talk about. So uh, that seems to me to, you know, that's, that's by no means um, a philosophical article worthy uh, answer to the problem, but it does give you a brief overview of, well, I think there's this idea of how God in himself um, has these virtues that are just original exemplifications on the basis which uh, these uh, reflections that we normally call good in everyday human affairs uh, can be grounded. And then uh, toward the question, what would motivate or count as reasons uh, for God commanding or uh, 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 prohibiting certain behaviors or, or certain attitudes or whatever, I, I think there again, I kind of uh, previewed that in my answer that I think, well, God is, God is Trinity. Um, so his, we would expect his uh, laws, which are aimed at giving creatures a means to experience his original triune beauty uh, to uh, witness it and to, uh, uh, you know, have some way of uh, reflecting that in themselves. So it's going to have to be communal. Um, it's going to be on the basis of love. There is a certain other centricness uh, to uh, God's knowledge that's going to be a basis for um, being compassionate towards others, you know, so on and so forth. So it seems to me that um, that's a very straightforward way of answering those those questions. Okay, so... I've put quite a bit on the table. We've we've gone from everything from the youth of Rowe to the is ought to the even question. So how about you put forward an objection now? <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, so I think actually I want, this is exactly the kind of objection that I would raise um, against you, Ben. So it seems to me that when you talk about reasons and you talk about moral norms, uh, by way of analogy, it seems that you're sort of handing us a rule book. You have sort of this list of rules, but there's no way to account for how the rule book itself as a whole is good or obli obligatory. So we might think of this as, as a sort of metaphysical problem where you have all these particular instances that you identify as good or as values uh, or as norms, but then we can ask the question, well, what are they instancing? Um, what is that? What exactly is it that unifies all of these particulars? And it seems to me that the very motivation for taking an ethical non-naturalist position is that there's no answer to that question. But that seems to me to leave you in a very bad epistemological state, because then really when we say um, it is good not to cause needless suffering. That's really indistinguishable from saying it's shmud or it's bibbidi bobbidi boo uh, not to cause needless suffering. Since, I mean, we're, all we're doing is uh, a, a taking a word 
and classifying certain uh, instances of behavior under that word where that word doesn't really refer to anything uh, substantive. So I, I think you're right to point out that an implication of the ethical natural, non-naturalist view is that something like goodness, something like um, a, a primitive moral concept is going to, in essence, be indefinable. In the sense that we're not able to define it in, without making reference to an irreducibly normative concept. So what we need is a concept that unites all of these things. And so that's what I try to do with the concept of a normative reason. So, and a normative reason is a consideration that counts in favor. Counts in favor roughly means gives a reason for. So because of the indefinability of my view, I can't explain this concept merely by using words. So how you would, you know, try to characterize what goodness is using words about God, I just, I don't think that can be done. I think what we have to, ha the way we explain these concepts is to get people to use them. And so when I say that the nature of what it's like to be burnt or whipped gives us all reason to want to avoid those kinds of experiences. I'm saying something about the nature of being burnt or whipped, the, 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 the nature of pain. I'm saying that it, it itself, a part, like, in order to understand pain holistically, you have to understand that it has this property of counting in favor of our responding to it in some way. Um, I have similar claims would apply to love. So pain would be something that would have the property of counting in favor of us responding to it negatively, whereas love would be something that would count in favor of us responding to it positively. So I think this concept of a reason also helps us in the epistemic domain, which is where you seemed also to bring up a word. So just like I think that there are things in the world that can count in favor of our responding to them in some ways, or in acting in certain ways, I think there are things in the world that count in favor of our believing certain things. So I believe that the fossil record has the property of counting in favor of biological evolution. But I don't have to go dig around fossil record for this property of counting in favor of biological theory. That's something that, that the fossil record has in and of itself. So again, we'd have to understand holistically the fossil record in order to get to the conclusion that we should believe that biological evolution is true. It's what makes it the case that we should believe that theory. And so you raise a very important epistemological question of, well, then how do we come to knowledge of these basic moral truths, these things that we can't define in other terms that we we have to use these concepts in order to understand them. This is where Hegel is going to be very, very influential into my thought, because I think it's a dialectical process. I think it's a historical process of moral argument. I think as we go through this dialectical process, we become more acquainted in and, of, in and for itself moral truth of reality. And this is how we make moral progress. So 
So it used to be the case that thought slavery was morally permissible through the pro historical process of moral argument and dialectical, we have come to the, to the realization of the basic moral truth that it is immoral or it counts in fa it, uh, owning other people. The, the act of owning another person has this property of counting in favor of us not doing that. That's something that's categorically wrong. We've made moral progress in this way. Um, so we, uh, the, I'm not going to be able to give a straightforward um, understanding of how we come to knowledge of these moral truths by just appealing to my five senses. I'm going to have to appeal to this much larger holistic dialectic that is going on through time that we all participate in as a dialectical, as a conversation, as doing moral philosophy like we're doing right now. Um, we are part of that process, and by um, trying to understand concepts in themselves, like we're doing right now, like you laid out your view, trying to understand something in itself, and then thinking of objections to that view, understanding a view out of itself, and then help us reach the truth in and for itself. Now, this is Hegelian, and the tool that's often used to help us understand this is comes from Fichte and it's the uh, some people might be familiar with it it's thesis synthesis uh, thesis antithesis synthesis um, granted that's a very very rough simplistic way of thinking of um, Hegelian dialectics but it does help us see that that that's what we're trying to do that's how we're coming to we're um, Coming to a knowledge of these um, truths through philosophy, but this again has another huge implication, another feature of my view that's very unique in that I don't think moral properties are discoverable by the natural sciences. There isn't some uh, natural experiment or test in the natural world that's going to settle moral disagreements. So it might be a question of the natural sciences as to whether or not we can extend human life hundreds of years into the future. There's no experiment or natural theory that's going to help us decide whether we should ought or must extend lives. You know, is, that's a moral question. That's something that we're going to have to do moral philosophy, and we're going to need to um, use resources that not only the natural sciences presuppose, but that the natural sciences themselves are just not going to be able to get at through the methods of experimentation, observation. Um, I don't like to use the term falsification, but you know, these are, those are scientific methods. That's just um, not the method that we're going to use to discover um, moral truth, just like it's not the type of method we would use to discover mathematical truths or logical truths or even modal truths, modal truths being about what is possible or what is necessary or what is contingent. It's just, these are, these just, these, this is where we're in the realm of pure philosophy. I'm sure I rambled there for a while. I apologize, but. <laughs> no, it's totally, I mean, I've never done that before, so no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm terrible about that. So, uh, 
Uh, well, I'll say a couple things. Uh, first of all, you have to humor me because there's no way you have to humor me because there's no way for me to um, cover everything there. And there's some there's a lot of uh, agreement in funny places. Like I do, I am fond of the way that you connect um, uh, epistemic norms to moral norms. That I am very fond of. I think um, that's something that um, naturalists in the philosophy of religion sense of the word have a big problem with. And I don't think that the same type of objection, I maybe maybe related objections, but not the same type of objections. They found a lot of common ground. So like the, the variation of metaphysical naturalist that I am is not a reductive one. I think reductive naturalists certainly suffer from exactly from what you just, you've just trying to understand, uh, I believe the the in the literature it's called naturalized epistemology, and I I think that runs into problems. Yeah, yeah, I think it's I think it's hugely problematic. I, yeah, so, but um, I think I just want to press you a bit on whether there's an answer looking there uh, in what you went over. It seems to me that um, this problem has an has epistemological consequences, and there's a there's a big lurking uh, objection that's, that's almost like the counterpart of the one I'm giving right now. But I want to say that this objection is really a metaphysical objection. It's really a concern that goes back to Plato. And uh, uh, maybe you want to interrupt and give your response when I, when I give this analogy, but just for the sake of the listeners, um, one of the issues, one of the objections that's brought up against Plato is that when you consider these abstracta when you consider something like the form of a tree that's supposed to be this um perfect vision if you will of what all trees are and they are they are mere participant reflections of this original tree one of the big problems is that for plato uh it's pure abstracta it's pure form there is no particularity to um the form of the tree so it doesn't have seven branches you know, it's not six feet tall. You can't touch its roots. It doesn't have bark. It has nothing about it that would connect it conceptually to a tree. It has no, and for that very reason, it has no explanatory power. It just has nothing to do with the tree. In fact, you can't say anything particular about it because that would just be to attribute particularity to mere abstracta. And I think, Ben, your position runs into exactly the same problem, that you can give these lists again, something like a rule book that I can look into and I can read every page and see that you have all these rules. But then the question can be asked, okay, what's the significance of the rule book? And why should I take Ben's rule book over Muhammad's um, or the next guy who comes along? Why should I think any of them aren't really just talking about their preferences rather than actually speaking about something that is extra mental? And I think there just is no answer to that, because even when you say something like, um, you know, the, the unifying concept is uh, a motivating norm, or that might be redundant for you, but a, uh, a, uh, a reason to act or, or something in favor of an attitude or behavior or something. The issue then is, well, what is that? Right? Well, what, what exactly are we talking about when we talk about these uh, uh, norms, right? What, what, what exactly is, if as soon as we go to answer that question, presumably we're going to get 
just a bigger list of norms, right? Now we're just getting the list of moral norms and epistemic norms and these other properties of, of what we consider good and evil. But we still haven't answered the question, what is good? What is normativity itself? And so I see here lurking a very big uh, problem of vacuity to the words. It, it, just to be clear for the listeners, um, Ben, I think on many issues has very virtuous opinions about these things, opinions I would agree with. I just don't think those are consistent with uh, ethical non-naturalism. That's fair. Um, so to answer, the, did you just start off where you last left off? Um, the, the problem that you say, you know, just def, just characterizing what goodness is and that that's a problem for my view. And so I would just admit that. I would just bite the bullet on that because I would say, look, goodness is indefinable. It is a feature of my view. It is a defining feature of my view that the that goodness is a primitive concept. So it would be like uh, a concept like consciousness or time. It's a um, it's a type of property that we just we cannot get behind, so to speak, in order to um, understand it in terms of something simpler because there isn't something simpler to it. It is primitive in that sense. And so I'll, I'm in the, uh, in, in the spirit of admitting objections to my view. Um, I think <laughs> there are two um, standing objections to my view. The, the, the two objections that I have to constantly um, be thinking about. And so the first is the argument from queerness. And it's basically that um, these primitive properties that I'm referring to just seem too queer to be part of the universe. They just seem too strange and too weird from everything else that we're familiar with. So how do these things fit into the furniture of reality? Well, if we frame that objection in non-reductive terms, if we're not using a reductive method, I don't think that um, objection carries much force because things... There's plenty of things that seem queer, you know, things like logical truths, mathematical truths, modal truths, you know, a possible world where, you know, certain things have these, those things also seem queer, but they're integral to how we understand. So don't give too much credit to that objection. The second one is, I think, the more important one, and it's certainly the one you've been pressing more. It's the epistemological ob objection. How do we have knowledge of these indefinable properties? And so I tried to lay out a little bit of the Hegelian dialectic process of how we come to knowledge of these sorts of things. And so uh, it, with, with Hegel, he would, we can use a, a specific example from his Science of Logic, where he lays out the concept of a universal and the concept of a particular. So this is... You map this onto your objection. There's the abstracta, the universals, and there's the concreta, the uh, uh, particulars. And so, if we think of these as a thesis and an antithesis, if we if we try to understand the universal out of itself, we arrive at the antithesis that is a particular. A particular being you know, the opposite of a universal. 
and the interplay of these ideas give rise help us understand the uh, concept of individual. So the individual is a particular has universal rights. So by understanding the the individual, we can understand how we come to knowledge of universal. So it's this interplay of understanding the concepts of universal, something out of itself, and then the understanding of something particular in itself that helps us understand these things in and for themselves. And that's how we come to the knowledge of something like individual. So the, another worry you laid out is, you know, well, how do we know that, you know, you have this rule book, you know, well, how do we, why don't we just pick some other rule book? Why, why this rule book rather than some other? Part of that answer is going to lay in the nature of the Hegelian dialectic, nature of us, of the moral argument. You know, well, why should, why shouldn't we have slaves? Why should we, why, you know, why can't we keep slaves? Dialectic has moved, moved on that. It's part of our, we've come to the knowledge that slavery is wrong. And so we, we have to then, in order to, to meet this objection of, well, what if we're just objects are not moral truths, but just mere preferences? Just the idea that what these, this is Nietzsche's concern, is that really what it is is just the vying of power of different preferences in certain time periods. And so I think that's, that's an objection that has to be met. And so um, I will try to meet that um, with what, we, what, what I can call here the agony argument. So the agony argument suggests that um, the nature of pain or the nature of agony um, gives us a reason or counts in favor of us wanting to avoid it. Now, if we are not robust realists about reasons, any other view is not going to have implication. I think that's <laughs> super implausible. So what do I mean by that? I mean that if you took someone who had the preference of wanting to hold their hand over a stove, or someone who had the preference of trying to eat a car, I think that these are in themselves irrational preferences. They are contrary to reason. And that because there is a fact that we should, ought, or must try to avoid future pain, because that sort of fact obtains, that's what allows us to make the claim that someone who does have the actual preference to want to eat a car or to hold their hand over a hot stove is acting irrational, acting contrary to reason. That if we deny that we have this categorical reason to want to avoid future pain, then we have the unacceptable impl implication that we would have to admit if someone had the preference to want to hold their hand over a hot stove or to want to try to eat a car, to want agony for its own sake, we would have to admit that that person is acting rationally. That to me is just an absurd implication. It is probably one of the, the strongest reasons that pushes me towards this holistic non-naturalist um, view of just rationality in general, because there's just certain things that just to me seem like there's no way, like if, if there's going, if we're going to have this thing called reason and it's going to help us be more rational, it cannot have these implications.
Yeah, there's some there's definitely some good stuff there that I agree with. I'm gonna have to steal your phrase, uh, eat a car. That's that's great. I, like that. <laughs> I oh. borrowed it from Jared Parfit, so just <laughs> nice. Yeah, I'm definitely taking that one. Um, okay, so I think I think to some extent we've actually moved from one objection uh, to a, a new epistemological one. So from from my point of view, I think there's the metaphysical concern of vacuity, the emptiness objection that like we're not really saying anything meaningful or substantive when we say this is good or that is bad, because all we have are ununifiable particular claims. We have no concept. That's that we can cash out that unifies them. It seems that, on, like on my view, like on a, from a Christian perspective, there's this God um, who uh, you know has a particular beauty about him that you can spell out in, in specific terms, and that is uh, uh, historically discoverable. It seems that it's uh, in some sense kind of friendly to a, a dialectical movement, and that human beings are uh, as a as a as a race, gaining more experience of God as our race continues on, to know moral facts is to have some kind of inkling what God is like. So it seems there, like we have a unifying concept. And I'll just, you know, uh, leaving that behind, uh, give you space there if you want to say anything about that. But as far as the... I would just, uh, I would just uh, yeah. uh, so that it's clear for the listeners, um, so I would try to unify all these by the irreducibly normative concept of a reason. And then I would say that it's, it's not vacuous because claims like we should want to avoid future pain, that's a substantive claim. That's, just, that's not a trivial claim. That's not true by definition. It's something we could argue with. I realize that the contrary seems absurd, that we should ought or want to want pain for its own sake. That's what leads me to this view. Go ahead. Okay, so I but I also don't want to jump the gun. So if you have an objection to my view, feel free to jump in. But but as far as um, this epistemological problem, what I would uh, respectfully push back is I think there I think this is really a very sophisticated disguise for subjectivism, because I think when you say things like um, when we consider pain. Uh, and there's no way to conceive of it being rational uh, for someone to uh, desire being in pain. The issue to me seems to be that you could simply say um, that that's, you know, there's, there doesn't seem to be any, con let me put it this way. When you make those comments, it seems that one can interpret them to inform us about your personal preferences uh, without need to add any more content to what you're saying. So if, if, if you were to say something like, you know, I prefer not to be in pain, and maybe it can be proven, I don't, I don't think it can, that people prefer for the human race in general um, not to be in pain, then you have something like a universal preference. But even then, I think that would at best get you to some kind of constructivist morality, where morality is really just kind of a shared... Uh, fable that people had. You know, they have this this story about how we are all uh, unified by this preference in society um, not to cause each other pain, so let's not do it. But that doesn't actually make it an extra mental fact or state of affairs that people have a reason not to be in pain. So I guess there I would just wonder, like, how do how does one justify the belief 
um, that you know we have a reason to avoid pain in ourselves or for others or, or however you would like to to, so, to reinterpret that. I would uh, so I think the uh, best move for here for me here is to try to turn the tables on this objection to say um, that my view is an objectivist view and that either my view is right or some form of nihilism is right. Um, that's a very, very, very strong cl claim, I realize. Um, because what I want to what I, what, why, the reason why I say that is, is that my view is the one that is insisting what is morally relevant or what is of, of normative significance is in the object. So when I say that should want uh, is in the object of our judgment. I should say that um, we should want to avoid future pain and agony. I'm not saying something about any subject. I'm saying something about pain and agony. See what I'm saying? Like it's not saying anything about a subject. There's no subjective characteristic. Can I? that true? But now let's contrast this with your view. This is how I'm going to try to turn the tables on your view. We do have to make reference to a, a subjective characteristic, God's nature, God's commands, um, man's nature, and the relation that exists between these subjects. So those are part of the judgment that something is good, but it is a subjective characteristic. Um, that is what makes a moral claim true on your view. And so I'm trying to avoid that. That's, that's one of the reasons why I'm a non-naturalist is I'm trying to avoid all of these subjective characteristics. That would be indicative of something like a constructivist view too. I'm try, I, what, I, what I want to say is, is that, no, what is, what is normatively important is found in the object of our judgment. And whether or not that is true or false, independent of any subjective characteristic including God's attitudes, responses, including human attitudes and responses, including alien human and responses. I don't have to distinguish between these different types of subjects. I'm talking about morality because morality is independent of any subject. That's how I would try to turn the tables. Okay. Do you, there are two... Um, well, let me say three things, and I'll try to be brief. I'm... It's hard to say all three of them and, and be brief, but I'll try. Um, the first one is that I guess um, I don't think it's useful. I don't think it's it's uh, illegitimate, but I don't think it's useful to use the terms um, subjective and objective in the way that you do. But for the sake of charity, I think I would just bite the bullet and say, I don't think it's problematic for morality to be subject to an omniscient all-powerful uh, sovereign Lord who, who creates and cares for the universe and reigns over it with perfect justice aimed at a, a cosmic conclusion of, of, of grace and uh, final judgment. That's, that seems to me not, it seems to me that the entire reason why subjectivism is problematic in the first place is because it makes fallible, not wise, not in control, you know, the illegitimate agents equivocated with knowledge or truth or something like that. Like uh, for me, as someone who can have false beliefs, it would just be silly that my to say my beliefs are identical 
um, with knowledge or that my beliefs are a sufficient condition of knowledge, something like that. But that kind of objection just doesn't apply to a being whose thoughts determine everything about reality. So I think I would just bite that bullet and shrug and say, I, I, you know, I don't think that's, that's really a problem that my view faces. Uh, the second thing I would say is that um, I, I think, I, I wonder about this description of the moral fact being in the object. That is, it's a property of the object irrelative to surveyors, because that would mean that it's true even of a rock that it ought not to um, seek pain. And I don't know what it means to say, uh, you know, a non-moral agent is obligated uh, to avoid pain, right? It seems to me that these, these facts pertain only to moral agents and are therefore in some sense contingent upon the concrete natures of uh, creatures in the universe. I, I don't think you would disagree with that, but I also think you would change that in some way that will, the reason I'm putting that forward is I think you'll, you'll give some clarification as to why or how you- sure. Sure. Um, so my starting point is to be Aristotle here and say, you know, man is a rational animal. So obviously this applies to humans um, because we're rational beings and it might apply to other rational beings and rocks just are not other rational beings. So while there might still, there are still normative truths, just rocks aren't the sort of things that can have that kind of knowledge because they just don't have the cognitive capacities to do that. And so can um, distinguish here between moral agents and non-moral agents. And so moral agents are the ones that have the capacity to appreciate these truths. So if um, a small child um, comes in and rips up all the books out of someone's library, we're not going to hold them morally responsible for that because they, they, they just didn't understand the morality of their action. But if an adult did that, would and so that's there's a distinguish distinction here between someone who's a moral agent and who's not a moral agent now we can make a further distinction between a moral agent and a moral patient where a moral agent is someone who can understand moral obligations and the significance of their moral actions whereas a moral patient can't but they can still be the beneficiaries of a moral obligation or a moral act so again to use a child as an example they might not be moral agents, they are capable of being harmed. And, or our pets, our pets might be a better example here. Um, they, are, they do have um, a moral value. They can be harmed in a way that we can appreciate that we should not harm them. We should not treat them that way. And so by distinguishing between moral agents and non-moral agents, and then further between moral agents and moral patients, I don't think any, any significant problems arise. Okay, so uh, I'll put that aside for just for now because there's another objection I want to make regarding the subjective objective distinction, but save that for later if, if we have time. Um, the third response I want to make about your turning the tables is this, that it seems to me, um, you know, it seems to me that uh, my option just makes that argument a false dichotomy. That I, I, on the one hand, I think practically speaking, uh, nihilism and ethical non-naturalism are indistinguishable because 
on nihilism, um, there's there's no way to know for the very reason that there are just no facts to know, or maybe you're non-cognitivist or something like that, but there's no way to know um, moral facts. And it seems like on this view too, there's no way to know moral facts, even if they did exist, because all we can appeal to is our preferences. It seems that my view and other uh, Christian models like it is, is exactly the third alternative that look, there's this um, God who has designed human faculties to have um, sort of an intuitive awareness about moral characteristics uh, and who has given verbal uh, commendation of a certain way of life and uh, you know who, who reigns the cosmos in a certain way that has historical appeal to what uh, to the story that God is telling through it. So it seems to me that view gives you an extra mental bridge between the, the subject and the moral object, even if you think the moral object is itself um, subjective in that it's subject to uh, the God who creates it. So um, I would only, uh, for the sake of brevity, I would, uh, the, the way I would push back is again to, um, to Hegel here. Um, when you say that we would that to to have we wouldn't have knowledge again, I totally admit that there's an epistemological objection here that's worth answering. I mean, how do we have knowledge of these moral facts? But the way you characterized it is that we only have access to our preferences. So when I hear that, that to me seems like you're only admitting of one part of the Hegelian di dialectic. You're only you, we can only understand something in itself can't understand something out of itself, nor could we understand the relation of those so that we could understand a world in and for itself. So I would just say that that's, that's clearly false. We can, we, we can clearly understand um, abstract and universal concepts um, in themselves, out of themselves, and in and for themselves. And then I, I gave the example earlier of how we can understand the concept of universal um, in itself, and then we can understand the concept of, uh, of a particular out of itself, and then we can understand, um, we can combine those to understand um, the world in and for itself in our concept of the individual, a particular person with universal rights. So, suppose we think of this in, in terms of, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to press back on you as, as uh, so, uh, Apologies for being uh, spunky, but uh, suppose that we think of this in terms of a regress problem, right? So you might enlist um, appeal to um, the irrationality of um, seeking pain needlessly or something like that, or, or, or not avoiding pain, or however you wish to put it. Uh, then the question can become, right, why are we justified in believing that? Uh, what would your response be? So you would have to then apply to some things would be intrinsically justified. So this is a question of foundationalism or coherence. So where where does justification come to an end? How do we uh, resolve any further disagreement? And so in metaethics, we're just we're just going to have to say what the implications of the theories are. And so if two people disagree over um, some truth and we're objectivists then one of them is closer to the truth than the other. And so then we would have to do further dialectical argument in order to figure out where it is, where, which, which side is making the mistake, which side is closer to the truth than the other. And so 
But then you raise an even an, uh, uh, an even deeper question of you know well when does that justification come to an end? When can we say okay, well this is what's intrinsically justifying. If we deviate from this, that's when we're making the mistake. That's a very difficult question. Um, that's what you know. I lean towards a foundationalist um, view, though I am sympathetic to coherentist and pragmatic theories here, where maybe these different theories are methods that are climbing the same mountain from different sides. They can understand um, a justification, you know, how some justification might be foundational, and we can understand that by how it coherently fits with everything else, kind of like what we were doing with, you know, simplicity earlier and how things can be unified and coherently see how they fit together. Or we can see the pragmatics of it. We can see how they actually play out in a dialectical and how um, certain ideas are just more useful than others. So um, when I gave the example of um, wanting to, having the preference of wanting to eat a car, that, that helped us understand um, the point that I was trying to make better than if I had used some other example. And so that, that's a pragmatic um, use of that concept. It helps us understand something deeper. And so perhaps we should, uh, perhaps we should have another dis discussion about epistemology because I feel like we could get into something very, very, we could get very, very deep into, you know, well, where do, when do, where do these justifications come to an end? It is a very, very interesting epistemological question. Yeah, for sure. I, I guess I would, uh, I guess I would maintain that I, I, uh, I remember in your in your commentary with uh, it's Cody, right? I think I'm getting that right. Corey, Corey, Mark. Corey, that's right. Sorry, my bad. Um, uh, you made the I caught the phrase and I thought, wow, that I think that's a really great way to put it. That um, you know, at some point, you just have to take these moral beliefs for granted. And I I thought that immediately, right? Oh, that's that's foundationalism. But I think that's sort of the my that's exactly my objection here is that well. The problem that runs into is that that just is an example of subjectivism. That's just a way of saying when we follow our justifications back, we eventually um, run down into into beliefs that we can't justify. We just have to assume them. But to say that we just have to assume them, and maybe you meant something different by that. And so, yeah, I think I, so. It's not that we just have to assume them. It's that they are the bedrock. They are. As if we're if we're thinking of analogy of you know digging a hole, this is where we hit the bedrock. There isn't something deeper um, than this. That's just where uh, that's where justification comes to an end. It's not that we have to simply assume it. And we might do that for the sake of argument to then run a reducto ad absurdum, and this is part of the dialectic of how we come to the knowledge of these. Sure, that might be the case. But what what, I, uh, what I'm trying to articulate there is that. Truths are primitive. They're basic. So if I say, if I lay out some basic truth of mathematics, I'm just, it's not that I just assume that basic truth of mathematics. It's just, that's the foundational truth of mathematics. That's where if we were digging for this truth, we've hit bedrock. We've, we've, this is, this is where justification comes to an end. And I do not pretend to have uh, settled all the questions of to of where justification comes to an end. <laughs> for, sure. for sure, yeah, I don't think anybody has, but uh, certainly not myself. But I, I still, I think I'm going to press you maybe one last time and just say, well, I think um, that strategy of saying, you know, this is bedrock, and therefore it's legitimate to stop here, 
um, just legitimizes the same strategy against it. And that, to me, is exactly the same thing as subjectivism. I mean, the, the problem with subjectivism is that when you say, when someone says something like, I believe X, and that is a sufficient condition of it being knowledge, I believe X, therefore I know X, um, the problem is somebody else can say, well, I believe not X, and therefore I know not X. And there's no way to adjudicate between those two because the principle legitimizing the one legitimizes the other. And so... And adjudicate between the two of them by argument. So just like what we're doing right now, we would then say, okay, let's assume you're right and let's assume I'm right and let's see what follows for that. Yeah. So that's a coherentist approach. Well, so what I, yeah, what I would say is that I don't, th I don't think that that's admitting the legitimacy. I think that's saying since um, that's because that whole uh, unavailability of adjudication would be a problem. Therefore, it's just not legitimate to claim bedrock. And you have to do the hard work of arguing about these things in order to present uh, a justified case. So it seems to me that is just to grant what I'm saying and say, look, we cannot say we've hit bedrock. We just have to take these things for granted. This is where the justifications stop. What I would say is that it, um, I don't have a problem on the face of it saying that there's something like intrinsic justification. But there, I think I would just challenge you to show that there's something intrinsically justifying about pain or something like that. It seems to me that like, if somebody says something like, look, there's this God um, and he's come down in the flesh and he speaks with perfect wisdom uh, and uh, perfect deity to creatures whose psychology he's designed from top to bottom with the intent that they will recognize who he is. It seems to me there you have intrinsic justification. You know, it's impossible to be mistaken or fail to recognize who Jesus is in that situation because he has all the conditions required to cause you to know that. But when we consider the concept of pain, there just is nothing about it that would make us expect uh, uh, belief, uh, much less knowledge, uh, that it's just intrinsically wrong, right? Nothing about pain explains why would we why we would know that pain is something we should avoid. So I, I would I would push back here, and so in the in the theme of intrinsic uh, intrinsically justifying, so I could I could appeal to something like a, a, a principle of phenomenal conservatism that says you know, things are the way they appear in the absence of some sort of defeater. And so I would say that the nature of pain, what it is like to be in pain, when we, when we remember what it is like to be in pain, experience the nature of pain, it does seem like it's the sort of thing that counts in favor of us wanting to avoid. I do think that's the case. I think there is something about pain. When we reflect on the nature of pain. There is something about it. It seems like it counts in favor of us wanting to avoid it. That we do not have any defeaters for that. There is no defeater that would say, no, no, no. It's actually the case that we should want pain for its own sake. We should, we should want to put our hands over a hot stove just for the sake of having our hand on a hot stove. And so I think, I think we can say that the nature of pain is intrinsically justifying in the sense that we have this normative reason to want to avoid it for its own sake. <laughs> 
I want I want the listeners to appreciate the irony here because um, I not only agree that um, you know ceteris uh, paribus, you know, all things being equal, you should avoid pain. But I even agree that I think it's irrational, uh, all things being equal, uh, not to avoid pain, especially uh, causing it to others. But but I don't think you would consider it legitimate, Ben. For someone to say, well, I don't know uh, what it is um, about Christianity that uh, allows it to succeed with this phenomenal conservatism. You know, it it just seems to everyone that Christianity is true. So unless I have a defeater for that view, um, you know, there's there's uh, it's justified. I think you're going to immediately produce a defeater. And I don't think the defeater you produce is going to be of significant uh, uniqueness such that I can't use that same defeater against the claim that um, pain inherently uh, seems to be wrong. So I, I think that, uh, to, to use theism as the example, um, you could offer something like the problem of evil, an argument from evil, and that would be a reason to doubt the truth of theism. However, I don't think there is a similar argument from evil or argument from pain that would be a defeater for the claim that we should want to avoid pain for its own sake. I, I don't think such an argument exists. I'm open to such an argument. I'm not aware of any. Okay, let me, do you, let me first say that uh, I 100% agree. We should definitely come back and discuss <laughs> epistemology because Philosophy is uh, never, that's the beauty of it. <laughs> There's so, yeah, there, I mean, when you jump into the middle of the pool, it just keeps expanding. So, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I'm totally with you on this. And I mean, already here, there have been so many things like, um, one thing I keep forgetting to mention, but I wanted to agree with you on it, or I wanted to point it out is that, you know, um, I do agree with you here, perhaps, depending on how you define it. Um, that there are certain of these truths, perhaps like pain or like good. I think I think good is is that's something I'm staunchly in agreement with you about. Um, that are primitive concepts, but I think we would disagree about whether or not primitive concepts um, cannot be cashed out in non-trivial or non-tautological terms. And there, I think like oh, that's kind of an epistemological um, difference, oh, perhaps. Yeah. We should definitely because. That that would take us into like you know Moore's open question argument. Yes, I think that would. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I think that'd be a really good conversation. Cool. Um, okay, let, so let me just if you're I don't know how much time you have. Uh, should probably have, be wrapping it up here. I know that I I'm gonna be okay. a baby. To, to okay. Be clear, Can, do you mind if I give you one uh, last consideration? I, I laid out my view at the start. Um, so I had the first word. So why don't you go ahead and close, give the last word in a close. Closing. Okay. Okay. Maybe we can come back to this. I feel, I feel bad, but I, one, one. Sorry. What did you say? I said, oh, I don't feel bad. Okay. Well, I really appreciate your candor, Ben. And I'm glad that we got to have this discussion. I hope you, uh, I hope we have more discussions like these in the future. For sure. Yeah. Um, okay, so I guess uh, one concern that I wanted to get to, but there's just, like you said, there's just too many things, um, is it seems to me that, uh, like with Plato, like with Plotinus, uh, so also with, with uh, Hegel, who I think is maybe like the supreme uh, version of Platonism, 
uh, it seems to me that you run into a sort of fatalism with these norms because consider considered in themselves when we uh, think about what you're talking about when you say like a fact in favor of that's really something kind of like logical implication but the problem with logical implication is that it's not necessarily depends on your metaphysic it's not necessarily motivating so what that's to say is that this concept of norms doesn't include motivation. It doesn't mean that human beings care uh, about these norms. And so you might you can imagine that there is some argument, for example, um, that the sky is blue. And you can also imagine that society has um, developed such technology that they don't even go outside, don't even look at the sky anymore. They just don't care that there's a, a fantastic argument that the sky is blue. They don't care to believe that the sky is blue. It doesn't motivate them, even though I think we would agree they're obliged in some sense to think so. And so this, this creates a tension here that um, it's not sufficient for your meta-ethic to provide mere uh, implicative facts like that, it, you know, you ought to, uh, for, you know, that, you, that there's a reason to act in a certain way, for example. It has to be a motivating fact. You, people have to actually care about being good people. But it seems to me that looking at the story of history, we would expect exactly the opposite. I mean, human beings are just as uh, cousins of apes, animals that are very friendly toward raping and pillaging. Um, the, the story of humanity is a very sordid tale of empires building up, practicing, practicing imperialism, uh, imploding because of uh, rebellious arsonists or expanding to the point where they just uh, become rotten hives of villainy. Uh, the the story of humanity is actually a very dark one, and furthermore, you know, on our best uh, scientific theories uh, from a, a naturalist perspective, the universe is going to blow up. You know, it'll it'll die of a heat death, or it'll, it'll become cold, or whatever. Humanity is not going to last. It doesn't have some kind of end, cosmic justice, utopia, etc. And it seems to me that the nature of motivations is that they're teleological in nature. We're motivated by goals. We're not motivated by mere um, laws. The laws motivate us because they're in pursuit, you know, perhaps of some ideal. Perhaps it's, you know, goodness itself motivates us. But even that would count as um, a teleological end, that we want to see goodness manifest historically in the world. So if we have no reason to expect that that's, the world, that's where the world's heading, and if we have no reason to expect that human beings have some um, unique capability to care about and pursue good, which I would argue from a naturalist perspective, we have no reason to expect. It seems to me that these, are, these moral facts are at best just cold, logical facts of reality that have no bearing on us. I mean, you might as well just drink, be merry, and follow the wisdom of um, the Koheleth and Ecclesiastes, who speaks from the kind of viewpoint of a nihilist and says, you know, don't be too good, don't be too evil, be a perfect balance because you don't want to end your life by just being a perfect saint. And you got to preserve your goodness by doing a few bad things to other people. It seems to me like that's the kind of uh, motivations you end up with in that and uh, an ethical non-naturalist uh, worldview. This is a great, great discussion. I, I want to I thank for 
Yeah, I really appreciate you coming on, Ben. I'm, I'm sorry that I, I mean, I wish we could talk more, but I know your time is constrained. So, I, I think we we got some really good stuff. There's a lot of material, a lot of good stuff for people to listen to, and I, I definitely think we should set up something again to another one. Um, way it's not a hour long discussion for people. Let's do it, brother. And uh, congratulations on your on your child. That's awesome. Oh, thanks so much. We're 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 super stoked. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> glad, I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad you're you're uh, not a nihilist in your raising. There we can you know we can say cheers to that. We could we can both agree on that. All right, Ben. Well, you you have a good one. Uh, I guess I don't. I guess Chase, you're wrapping I, up. I hello, I'm here. Sorry, my dogs are barking. What's up, bro? Did you did you job uh... today? Didn't you, Chase? What? Had a pretty easy moderating job today. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to you two, I just sit here, you know, hang out, <laughs> listen, not understand half of it, but I still enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, but when I heard you were a friend of Tyler, I was like, oh man, that I already know that you're incredibly nice and gracious to people on your podcast so that was just that was the the chair on top i was like oh yeah okay this guy's gonna be super cool <laughs> yeah tyler and i've been we've been pretty good friends now for probably about four years so he's definitely he was he's definitely been giving me some advice for baby stuff <laughs> nice all right y'all well i'm gonna have to take off but uh again once again thanks for inviting me and uh, let's set up something soon.